Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today I'm talking with Niall Dawson. Niall is the owner and founder of a company called North Road and North Road specializes in open source geospatial software. His journey into geospatial began with personal interests in mapping and, and cartography, which later evolved into a business. I met Niall in person this year at the Phosphor G conference in Auckland and I gotta tell you, he's a really nice person. He's humble, he's interesting and he does amazing work in fact if you were casting him in some kind of storybook plot he would be a great reluctant hero but that's not why i wanted to make this episode for you i wanted to share niall's story with you because it could also be your story you could decide to have a story that starts with contributing to something you care about which leads to you becoming a known expert within a community that cares about the same thing and evolves into paid opportunities i like sharing these kind of stories but i can't do it on my own so when Planet reached out and said, hey, we would like to sponsor your podcast and you have complete creative freedom, I thought, well, great. I'll use that sponsorship to help share stories like this one. So if you haven't heard about Planet before, go back through the archives and look for an episode called Planet Imaging Everything, Every Day, Almost. And if you have already listened to that episode, you'll remember that Planet images the Earth every day to create a living data set of global change. And you don't need to learn new tools or spend a ton of time to make use of these insights. Use planet satellite in imagery to drive richer analysis with high spatial resolution and high frequency data, broad area coverage, and automated detection feeds integrated directly into your geospatial platform. You can learn more at planet.com GIS. Thank you very much for your support, Planet. I, I really appreciate it. Hi, Niall. Welcome to the podcast. Really great to have you here today, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You are one of the few people I know that is doing a great job of successfully running an, an open source business. And, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. You are the CEO, owner, founder, director of, of something called North Road. And that's what I'm hoping that you'll help us understand today. Like, what is North Road? What is your business? How do you make money in open source? So that's where I want to head to with, with this episode. But we need to start with an introduction. Would you mind just introducing yourself to us, please? And tell us a little bit about North Road. What is it? Right. So like you mentioned, I founded North Road. We are a company based around open source geospatial. So we do a, a mix of work on open source geospatial software, but also we do a, a mix of the kind of, I guess you'd say more traditional spatial services using open source software. What does that mix look like? Is it, you know, 50, 50, 30, 70? Uh, it, it varies depending on the year. It, it's probably right now about an 80%, 20% split. So 80% working on the software and about 20% using the software and doing those traditional spatial services. Okay. And working on the software, any particular software that you're working on, is it a broad sort of plethora of open geospatial stuff or anything in particular that... Predominantly it's on QGIS, so the open source desktop GIS, but also that, that kind of bleeds out across different parts of the open source spatial software ecosystem. So things like GDAL, uh, Proj, um, and a couple of the other lower, li lower level libraries as well. Yeah. And when you talk about working on QGIS, it, this is a, a big piece of software. Are we talking about making plugins for people? Are we talking about fixing bugs for, for organizations or you know, adding new functionality to the core? What, what exactly are we, we talking about? It's really all of the above. So we do a mix. Again, if I'm going to break it down in percentage, I'd probably say it's about 50% writing plugins and uh, doing services around 
QGIS. So that would include things like training, um, enterprise support, like if the an enterprise is kind of rolling out QGIS as their official GIS in, in-house and they need to have somebody on call that they can ring up when things go wrong or when they need assistance with that kind of deployment. And then the other 50% is actually doing the software itself. That would be going into the C++ source code or the, the Python source code, depending on which part of QGIS it is, and fixing bugs, adding stuff, changing things. Okay, th- thank you very much for that. Well, it's, so it's a broad range of, of things that you actually do. I, maybe this is a two-pronged question. What is your favorite thing to do? What is the work that you enjoy the most? And w- what, what makes you the most money? Or is it the same sort of hourly rate spread across these different projects? No, so, uh, I mean, I, I'm going to give a unexpected answer, I think. I, I, one of the things that I actually enjoy the most is um, leading up to a QGIS release, the QGIS project itself. So if you have a look at that project, there's a governing body, QGIS.org, sits above it, and they're kind of the ones that accept donations, accept project sponsorship, and then they divvy that out to different end, end organizations and developers. Prior to a QGIS release, they'll do a funded bug sprint uh, where they contract some of these regular developers to basically just go in for a period of a couple of weeks and just smash out as many bug fixes as possible to make sure that that release is in a really good state. And that's something that I really enjoy doing. So it's a, yeah, a regular thing that comes up prior to every release. And there's a I don't know, I get a lot of satisfaction about just finding a ticket, digging into it, finding out what's wrong, fixing it, and solving that once and for all, hopefully. Is that kind of a, a sh- the, the sort of short-term dopamine hit that, that you're after there? Because my, my guess is some of these bugs don't take you that long to find and fix. I know, some of them are like a one-line, you know, two-second fix. If, if it's a really nice, good quality bug report, some of them, are, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, I know what needs fixing there. That's four weeks' work alone, so I'm going to skip over that. It's not kind of appropriate for this bug fix sprint effort. I, I kind of feel it's a bit like a, a puzzle that you're solving. And there, there is, a, I guess, a bit of an adrenaline rush or whatever you want to call it, dopamine hit from, from solving that. It, it, it's almost like uh, if you're playing a video game and you have a particularly challenging little bit where you've got to solve a puzzle and then you solve it and it's like, okay, well, I, I solved that. I worked it out. I, I solved the problem. But it has a, an extra element to it because it, actually like a, a practical useful thing to do as opposed to just solving a puzzle in a video game yeah and you're, you're you're making things better for for everybody else that also was being interrupted by this bug by this problem yeah as i say that that's a whole other side to it as well because um when you're talking about open source software and you solve a bug in that software there's thousands millions of users who will get the benefit of that and it's across a huge section of the globe. So going from big corporations who are using open source software all the way down to individual people in a developing country who wouldn't be able to afford any other software. And, you know, it's a massive, a massive kind of impact for each of those, those changes you make. Yeah, I can imagine like doing work that you think is, is meaningful. So, and so I have a little bit of this with the podcast, not on the same scale as what you have, but I feel like this is meaningful work. I feel like I have an impact on people. I feel like I'm making things better. And when you talk about it, maybe we have a similar feeling. So that's the work that you enjoy the most. What about the work that makes the most money? Yeah, that's not the work that makes the most money. The work that makes the most money is typically for larger corporations. So it would be a large enterprise who are using the open source software, need a change or they need some kind of service around that. And they're uh, used to paying large organization rates and they just want something done and done well. 
When you engage with an organization like that, do you, is there a scope of work that's presented to you and you accept that to enter into this formal contract? And, and do you also, is it an hourly rate that you charge or is it by project? Depends on the project. So uh, if it was a, to use an example, if it was something like, okay, we need this change made to QGIS, uh, we need this, this ticket fixed or we need this feature added, that, that will generally be a fixed price contract that we'll go into. So we'll give them a price up front and say, okay, well, this ticket will cost you this much money. It'll take this long. We'll get it into this QGIS release. And then they'll decide from there whether they want to go ahead with that or not. Yeah. And I, I guess my, my last question on, on this, like where are you now kind of phase of, of the conversation is around how long have you been full-time on this? It depends on how you define full-time, but probably around about five, six years. It's been um, a, a full-time thing. Uh, North Road has been around for a lot longer um, and it originally started as a, as a bit of a side thing alongside my full-time kind of day job. Over the past decade, a little bit longer than a decade, it's, uh, it's grown and grown until it became a full-time thing and we've got other employees now and such. Awesome. This is the perfect segue. You're, you're a brilliant guest. What I really wanted to do here at the start was give people an understanding of, of what North Road is, you know, what it does, how you make money, how long you've been around. And I want to do that because my, my guess is people are really interested in doing this for themselves, maybe being a freelancer, working on open source geospatial software. And so I wanted to give them an understanding of where you are at today. And now, thanks to your brilliant segue, we're going to move off and say and answer the question like, where did you come from? How did you get here? So I want to go all the way back and say, well, how did you first get involved in, in geospatial? Okay, so my first exposure to the spatial world, it was uh, my wife and I were backpacking around. We were kind of doing the Australian thing of finding ourselves and we took 12 months off to, to backpack around Latin America. And during that time, uh, we collected maps of the places we were visiting. And I, I kind of started putting them all into a big scrapbook. I was like, this will make a good reminder of the, the places I've been. And that kind of started my interest, I guess, in, in mapping and cartography and such. It, it kind of branched out a little bit from there. So we were also taking a lot of photos at the time. I wanted to be able to see the photos on a map and go back through later stage and see, okay, this photo was taken at this beach or this, this little town. And so that kind of led into the concept of geotagging photos. From there, it spread out even further because I wanted the software that I was using to view those photos had an OpenStreetMap background and a lot of the places we were visiting didn't have any content for OpenStreetMap. So it was kind of like the little pin for the photo was just appearing in the middle of a big blank slate. So then I'd start getting a GPS track of the buses we were on and uploading those to OpenStreetMap and I guess learning about spatial data and that without even knowing what it was at the time. So I got to the end of that year and it was that, that big question about what's next and I found out that you could actually do a job in this in spatial. So I went off to do my master's in geospatial information and yeah. That's a really interesting uh, introduction that you had there. Interesting too, that it feels like you were just scratching your own itch essentially. Oh, I wonder how this works. Oh, I'd like to see my thing on a map. Oh, I'm, I've got a GPS. I'll just turn it on while the bus is driving and then upload that and add context to, the, to my travel. So it makes a lot of sense. It was 100% scratching my own itch, to be honest, because it was all about like, oh, I want this, you know, I want to see this. I, <laughs> I like the spatial context of these things and I want to see it better. Yeah. There wasn't any big picture of I want to make the world a better place through contributing to OpenStreetMap at the time. That, that's really important. I think we're going to come back to that later on in the conversation. Okay. So, so you're scratching your own itch. You're, you're playing around with this, the spatial stuff, uh, OpenStreetMap, you know, geotag photos, that kind of thing, just following your interests. And then you went and did a degree in, in geospatial. What happened after the degree? After the degree, I went off to work in law enforcement. So I, I 
I had a, a job in the intelligence division in the Victorian Police Force. Um, and that job was about analysing the, the location of crimes. Um, big part of it was about sort of predicting where things would happen and, and developing models about directing resources to the best place. That was using a proprietary spatial GIS software that was quite limited. And so it was a, a situation where I was kind of consistently getting frustrated in my day job because the software was holding me back from what I wanted to do. And I found that insanely frustrating that there was things that I knew we could do if we had better tools, but we couldn't do them because the tools weren't available. And that's where uh, I started to dive into the open source side of geospatial. Predominantly at the time, the, the motivation there was the financial side of things. The, the fact that these tools were free and they were out there and there was no kind of limitation on us getting the tools and using them for the, the tasks we needed. But it uh, veered out from there because um, I'd had a little bit of software development experience in my past. Um, and so when I was using these tools, it was kind of a natural thing of like, okay, now I've, I've hit this bug in this tool or I've hit this limitation in the tool and it's stopping me from doing this piece of work. Can I fix that software itself and make it so that that block is no longer there? I just want to ask, so when you're working for the, um, the police department, were you employed as an analyst or a developer? No, that, that was an uh, analyst job, GIS user. Okay, perfect. Yep. Yeah, so, so we were, I was making maps and I was working with spatial data and all that kind of, again, quotation marks, traditional spatial roles. Yeah, but, but you had this development past, uh, you understood how to code, so you... I guess I started cracking open QGIS and, and fixing these problems that, that you were running into. Yeah, so I, I was using QGIS for uh, some of the maps I was making because the cartography abilities in QGIS was, was better than the other tools we had available. And I, I, there was a map series that I really wanted to look nice. Like I wanted to be able to hand it off to the, to the kind of internal client and be proud not only of the content of it, but also how it was presented. I kind of thought like for this to actually have a really good impact, it has to look good and look professional and sort of peak. QGIS at the time, so this is going back kind of 15 years, uh, was in a less mature state than it is today, I guess we could say. And there was, there was things that did really well, but there was also things that were missing and there was things that didn't work. So buttons that kind of didn't quite do what you expected or just were flat out broken. That was really how I got started in that, that QGIS development was, um, there was an issue with the, I think it was the graduated like the class breaks renderer, graduated renderer, and um, it was stopping me from doing what I needed. So I dove in and kind of looked at the source code. I was like, maybe I can fix this. You know, maybe maybe there's something that I can I can solve here. And that was my first contribution. Was it intimidating contributing to a community like like QGIS at the start? It actually wasn't. So um, the QGIS community at the time, and and I'd like to think it still is, um, was really welcoming to new contributors. So I was lucky enough that. People on the development team who knew the source code, knew all the practices about how to set up a development environment that were really welcoming to new contributors. And, you know, I had people who would basically mentor me through that. So there was a guy, uh, Nathan Woodrow, another Australian, and I'd kind of constantly be on him like, I want to fix this bug. Can you give me just a little pointer about where to look in the source code for where that, that kind of logic lives? Um, and yeah, I had a nice introduction to that and it definitely helped lower that, that learning curve about working out how the project works and how to send in the contributions, how to even just get things compiling and such. The other 
important thing to note there as well is that at the time, so all those contributions I was doing were again, like scratching my own itch to use that common phrase. Uh, so it was like, okay, I need this bug fixed because I want to make this map and this bug is preventing me from making this map. That gave me a really strong motivation to get past that learning curve as well and push through when it was like, I, you know, I don't think I can do this. Maybe it's too complicated for me. There was a really, yeah, really concrete motivation. I need to get this fixed so I can get this map done for myself. It wasn't for somebody else or just to close a ticket that's randomly floating out in the repository. Again, brilliant segue. So so you've been fixing these things for yourself. These, you were scratching your own itch. You needed to get this done, you know, in in this case, like maps to look a a certain way. So you were fixing these bugs for yourself because it was making it better for, for you. When and how did you get your first sort of paid contribution, your, your first paid development job in QGIS? Okay, so yeah, up till up till that stage, um, it was all again that that self motivated changes, and I was doing it. I was actually predominantly doing it on the train on the way home from um, from that day job. So I'd uh, just hack away on my laptop of like, uh, what was the you know what was the annoying bug that hit me today? Can I fix this on on my half an hour train journey home, and then tomorrow I won't have to deal with that bug anymore. I did that for oh, probably a couple of years, I think, and. People started to notice, so I, I started contributing more and more and, um, again, doing all the things that I wanted to do. Uh, then out of the blue, once I, I had an email from somebody and it was along the lines of, I saw you made this change to the kind of print layout designer. That's great. Uh, we've got a really similar need. It's just changing a little bit. How much would it cost to address our use case as well? Can we pay you to implement what we need? At the time, I... My whole exposure to open source was just about the non-commercial side of it, I guess, the, the part where everybody was contributing stuff just out of their own motivation or just because they wanted to make things better. And I really didn't know if it was even a thing that people were allowed to do about making money off open source if you're allowed to charge for the work that you do on it. And honestly, like this, this change that the person or the organization wanted it was a sort of thing that I, I looked at and I was like, that's actually a great idea and I would use that in my day job and it would make my, my own life better. I'd probably just do it for free because I want that change too now that you've mentioned that it's a thing. And so I, I wasn't really sure and it was like, oh, do, I, do I charge for this? Is it allowed? Is it not? I don't, I've got a day job. I don't have to charge for it. I could do it on the train and it's all fine. But at the same time, you know, if I can get some extra luxury spending money, whatever, then why not? You know, that's, that's a good thing. So I sent off a, an email reply to them and it was kind of along the lines of like, oh, it sounds good, you know, I'll do it for $200. And I kind of just threw that figure out there. I thought like, oh, I don't know what they're expecting. Um, I don't know if they're looking for a lot less. Or if they're, like, it, was, it was almost just like pick a random number. I, so I sent that email off and they were on the other side of the world. So it was kind of like a wait till their business day started. And so I went to sleep that night and it was quite, I was quite nervous and quite sleepless that night because again, I, I just wasn't sure about if what the etiquette was about charging for open source, what their expectations was. And I wasn't sure if I'd come back and check my email in the morning and I'd been kicked out of the project and everybody would brand me as a trader and like, you can't charge for open source. You know, that's not allowed. Like <laughs> that's against the, the ethos of everything and you're a capitalist, whatever, get out of here. So anyway, I, I had a bit of a sleepless night, wake up in the morning, check my email and there was a, a, an email from them and it was basically along the lines of like, is this number right? Like, are you sure? It seems really low. Can you check your figures again? Was there a typo there? And I was kind of like, oh, that doesn't help me. I don't know how much to charge now. Like, do I, if I go back and I double my figure, I'll look stupid. Uh, and 
yeah. So I think in the end, I, I was like, oh, well, I, I double check my numbers and I'll do it for $250. So, and they're like, okay, whatever, you know, if that's how much you're going to charge for that. And it, it ended up actually being like quite a large job. So it, it took a couple of weeks of work to do. Uh, this is sort of at night times on the weekend and outside of my day job. And it, yeah, it, looking back, that, that figure is definitely laughable. Uh, if I was asked to do a similar level job today, it, the figure would be kind of closer to the $10,000, $20,000 mark. So that was, that was a bit of a learning experience anyway. So that was my first paid work on open source. I got that $250 and I was happy because I could go out and spend some money guilt-free. But anyway, so after that, I started getting more of those kind of emails. And over time, I worked out how to charge reasonable rates for my, my work. How did you work that out? Because a lot of people starting out for themselves, or at least in the first few years, it feels like a bit of a guessing game and it's a total black box. It's really hard to understand what your peers are charging. Like you have to have a pretty good relationship with someone to be able to ask, like, what would you charge for this? So, but you, you, you've worked it out and you've, you've, I, I guess there's been a lot of sort of evolution in what you charge throughout time. So how, how did you work out what to charge? It's definitely been an evolution uh, learning experience that it's taken years, you know, maybe maybe a decade for me to work out exactly how much uh, value there is in different services. I 100% understand that trickiness of freelancers and sort of sole traders and such trying to work out what a reasonable rate for their services is because there's so much involved about not knowing what your competitors are charging, not knowing what your own worth is. And not knowing, I guess, as well, the, the rates that business expects to pay. It, it's also super tricky when you're, when you're dealing with um, customers who aren't always from the same country as you. And so you, you've got all those complications, but then you also have the complication of like, well, now uh, there's a currency conversion fee. And if, if I charge uh, an Australian rate, it could quite potentially be way too much for uh, the local currency or the local kind of cost of living uh, adjusted figures. So, At the start, did you also adjust for how much work do I have now? Like how much do I have in, in my, you know, for want of a better word, pipeline? It, it was more about learning, getting confidence in my own value. So the, the rate didn't increase until my confidence in my work went up. And I guess my, my realization of the value that I could give to these uh, organizations, these end users, where did that confidence come from? So how did you realize that the, this value? I, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just curious if there was a trigger for you. Was it just over time? Like, oh, these people are happy to pay that. Oh, I get some great feedback from this. Or perhaps looking at a job and understanding, like, you know, I, I can see exactly how I'm going to approach this, what the solution is. And I, I've got a good understanding of how much time it's going to take me. Yeah, that, so that was a big part of it. So the more I did that kind of work, the more I could start giving more accurate estimations of how much work something actually was. So it went from being like, a, uh, this might take a week to four weeks to, okay, well, I know that this will take 18 hours to do. So that, that would help me uh, much more accurately gauge the cost to myself for a job. There was also a part of it of just like, I guess, over time, learning that the the work I was doing was was high quality. Uh, and so that was, I guess, from feedback from people, but learning that, okay, well, what I'm doing is is good. It's worth things to people. I can start charging more for this. And then over 
period of years. You know, this is not something that was like a, a, a quick, easy lesson to learn. I guess there's also an element of trial and error there. Like you, you start charging more reasonable rates for your work and you see that the work still keeps coming in. So you're like, okay, well, there is value here still at these rates that mean it's more justifiable for me to spend this time on that work. For me, it's always a great sign when people come back. Oh, I like what you did last time. If I'm constantly looking for new people to work for and, and no one's coming back and saying, great, can we, you know, it was a success last time. Let, let's do this other thing together. That's a good sign, I think. There's definitely that element to it as well. So, uh, yeah. And so over time, I guess the, the amount of work that was coming in grew and it reached the point where I could be a bit more selective about the jobs that I would take on. And then that meant that I could look at a job and be like, well, this is not going to be something that is particularly enjoyable to work on. Like maybe there's an element to it that's a bit out of my comfort zone. Uh, maybe it kind of veers into technologies that I don't really like using. And I could be a little bit more picky and choosy about the type of work that we would take on so that it concentrated more on that work that we could do really well, we could do quickly and was enjoyable for us to do. When did you go full time on this? Like how many years have you been doing this kind of work before you you know, quit the day job and said, okay, I'm going to give this a go? It, it was probably about three or four years uh, that I was doing those kind of contracts on the weekend uh, at night time and such. And it, it reached a stage where it, it was really two full-time jobs that I was doing. So I was working my day job and then I'd come home and I'd, I'd spend a big part of the weekend and a big part of my, my nights doing this work that kind of it came to a head where it was like one of those decisions about like, I can't keep doing this, you know, this is too much to, too much time, too much, uh, too much on, too much stress, I guess you'd say. And I had a young family and such. And I was like, uh, now a decision has to be made. Do I see if I can make this a, a full-time job? Like I like doing that work. Uh, I like the idea of working for myself instead of having to work for somebody else. And uh, yeah, so at that stage, uh, I had the opportunity to take to kind of put my day job on hold for six months. And so I, I did that and I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on the open source consulting side of things and see if it is possible to make a living from this, make a full-time kind of wage from this. And if it's stable enough and it's secure enough and it's not going to kind of jeopardize the family financial situation and all that wonderful stuff. And so I did that. I took that six months off, worked full-time at it. And at the end I was like, yep, okay, this is, this is kind of what I want to do. I really like that approach. It's the, the approach of digging the well before you're thirsty. So you've been working on this for several years and you had this, you know, a proof of concept. You could see it was working. I'm making money for this. And the reason why it sounded like you had to make a decision was because you were simply too busy. I mean, it's got to be a great place to be in. Even so, I'm sure it was a difficult decision to make. And the reason I, I think that is because you still decided to, to put your job on hold. So there was still that sort of safety net there for you in the background. Yeah, I mean, many of the decisions that were made kind of along the, the course of, um, of North Road have been decisions that were made as a response to something. So that was a decision at the time, like there was a choice. I, I could just leave the open source thing as a side hustle, hobby thing outside of hours, keep a secure day job, or I could, I guess, take the more risky, chancy approach of running my own business, um, focused on that, on that open source software. It, it wasn't like a decision that was made years in advance about, okay, I see a market opportunity here. There's a you know, potential revenue stream. If we go down this and we set up these structures and these kind of corporate entities going for this market, 
it was definitely not a decision like that. It was more of an evolutionary thing of, okay, at this point, this is a nice logical choice that I can make. As I say, one thing I remember is that the first day of when I was full-time on North Road, the open source side of things, but still had that backup on hold. And that first day working for myself and I, I did a couple of hours in the morning and then uh, had a very long lunch break with my, my wife and my young son. And we just went to a park, had a picnic, and I was like, I, I like this lifestyle. <laughs> It sounds like, honestly, it's got to be the dream. Working on something that you're passionate about, that you believe in, is meaningful to you, something that you enjoy doing and getting paid for it and hopefully getting paid well for it and having control over your time. Like It sounds like a dream. Interesting though, I just want to highlight these two different approaches here that, that I see. So I've also talked to people that are very intentional. When I talk to startups, they're very intentional. Like we have done the analysis. We've got the reports and we've looked through the data and we can see a gap in this market if we approach it in, you know, in this way. That's going to be our wedge into the, this market here. And that, you know, they can see an angle and they're very intentional and they go after it. You know? Where you were more sort of organic. You were scratching your own itch, following your own interests, and it was building up to something. Obviously, this was the right approach for you. Do you wish you had been more intentional about some things, like leading up to either going full-time or shortly after you, you went full-time on this? And I guess I'm specifically thinking about marketing and you know, your websites, communication, uh, having a, a, a bookkeeping system, that kind of thing. This is all stuff that I've learned along the way. You know, my passion is open source. It's working on the technology. It's working on maps. It's working on the spatial data. It's not about managing a business and HR and superannuation and all that kind of <laughs> wonderful stuff that comes with running a business. My big motivation when I went full-time with North Road was really about how can I make this a full-time thing that I can do every day and I can have that satisfaction kind of flow through for the rest of my life. Everything has been learnt along the way in terms of things like marketing and branding and all that kind of stuff. I'm happy, honestly, with how that, uh, that evolutionary approach has worked for us. Has there been work along the way that you have said no to? And, and, and if so, why? There's definitely been work that I have I've turned away. Predominantly, it's because the work isn't something that uh, we wanted to work on, really. If it's a task that I don't feel is particularly in our area of expertise, then I'll, I'll tend to push it across to a, a partner that we have that would be better suited to that type of work. If it's a job that I feel would be better suited to a bigger organization that has got more resources or more kind of graphic design teams or whatever, then, then I'd push it across to somebody else. The jobs that I like to take on are the ones that um, really raise my interest in some way. So uh, it might be like a, a particularly interesting technical problem or it might be something like a, a change to the software, a new piece of, of functionality that I would really like to see myself again. Or it's something that I'm like, okay, I, I know exactly how to do that. It's, I, I can see the code in my head. This is how we would implement that. It's one, two, three. You know, the, the path is kind of there and invisible for us. Do you also find that you get contracts the, the other way as well, where people are saying, oh, you know what, Nile, North Road, those are the people you should talk to? Yeah. So behind the scenes, there's, there's many organizations that make a living off open source software. When you strip back the curtain, they're, they're all quite... It's quite a free-form lobby nature to it uh, where 
work will join up and do different partnerships on particular pieces of, um, on particular tasks and we'll throw work across to other people who we know know that piece of code better, pull them on as a subcontractor, whatnot. And it all tends to be this big kind of changing amorphous blob behind the scenes. So I often get asked the question of like, uh, are these other organizations who work on this code, like are they your competitors? And from a traditional business viewpoint, then the answer is yes. But in reality, it actually ends up being a lot more of a cooperative partnership nature where these organizations are working together behind the scenes and it will be like, okay, this is the part that we'll be able to do really well. We'll do this and then we'll pull you on to do this other part that you're better suited for and you can do really quickly and you know that that piece of software, that piece of code really well. It all changes and adapts and shifts. Do you think that would be a path to... You know, becoming self-employed, let's say I was really skilled in, in QGIS and developing QGIS, but I didn't have that sort of the, the brand or perhaps the status in the market that, that Northroad has. Like it, it was hard for people to find me. What would you think about the approach of going to different sort of vendors like yourself and uh, maybe Lutra Consulting, maybe someone else and sort of saying, hey, I'm here, I can help with, with these seven things and, and sort of building that, those partners? Yeah, I can tell you the, the best way that you could get a job on QGIS at least, and that would be to start contributing, uh, again, scratching your own itch of like, okay, here's something I want changed, here's a bug that I need fixed, pushing up those changes. And there is 100% companies that are involved in a daily basis on paid work with QGIS that watch these contributions flowing in, they see people who do good work and those people get pulled into those companies. So that is the best approach to getting a job working on these software. So I know you have a lot of experience with, with QGIS. What's your gut feeling with, with a lot of other larger sort of geospatial open source projects? Do you think QGIS is kind of the, the unicorn among them in terms of being able to make a living off like do, doing this kind of work? Or, or do you think there, there's equal opportunities with, with a lot of these other, these larger, more established pieces of software? I'm thinking about, I don't know, GeoServer, MapServer, these kinds of things, post-GIS. Well, there is definitely opportunities for people to make a business to make full-time living off any of these other projects. So uh, Postgres, you know, there's lots of enterprises out there whose job is working on Postgres and doing Postgres support and changes and such. GeoServer, MapServer, the same sort of thing. The nature of that work will be different project by project. So QGIS tends to attract, I guess, a quite a lot of end-user organization contracts People who are like, our staff suffer from this bug. Can you fix it? Our staff need this functionality. Can you add it? Other projects that are a little bit more behind the scenes, so something maybe like GeoServer or MapServer, would find more funding in the enterprise support side of things. So rolling out a deployment, being the person on call to help when things fall apart or uh, the you know, support is needed. So it's not the same recipe that applies across different projects. It depends on kind of how high level they are, how low level they are, how, how much user-facing exposure that, that project has. The other thing that's interesting is there's, there's quite a, a range of ways that the projects themselves are funded. So QGIS uh, has the QGIS.org organization that sits behind it. They get sponsorship and they get grants and funds from different channels, donations from, from people on the website, and they will divvy those funds up in different ways. So some of it goes to the infrastructure just to keep the project alive. They also have a grant system where developers can apply for funds and say, we 
want to do this change in QGIS. Uh, it's a you know, boring kind of maintenance change that nobody will see the result of, but will make things better for everybody because it's a behind the scenes thing. We're not going to be able to get funding from an end user organization to, to do that work. That's what those grants go to. And also the, uh, those bug fixing sprints leading up to a release. But then if you look at a project like GDAL, they have a different funding structure entirely. So GDAL has uh, quite large corporate sponsors who sit behind it that go into the, the, the GDAL pool of funds and they have effectively employees that work on GDAL through those funding. Let's say you were starting over and you were passionate and had experience in a few of these different projects. So just we'll, we'll stick with the names that we've already mentioned, QGIS, GDAL, um, GeoServer, just as examples. You were equally passionate about them. If you had to be intentional, like which one of those would you pick you know, to, to work on, to, to base your, your career around in the same way that, that you've done it with QGIS? Yeah, so that's a tricky question. So the, the reason I, I contribute a lot to QGIS these days is because, again, my background was a user. So I was a, a spatial analyst using QGIS and I know that world. I know what that kind of users need. I still do that kind of work. I still make maps and I, you know, I, I use that software. I, I love working on software that I use. At the same token, I think uh, I, I would be very attracted to working on GDAL because it's a fundamental piece of so many different projects. It, it underlies so much of what we do. Uh, there's a big attraction there to, to working on something like that. So I'm, I'm, I realize I'm jumping around the conversation, but I was just thinking when you were saying we, we still make maps and that sort of takes us back to right at the start of the conversation when you're talking about the breakdown of, of how you make money. It was so, you know, GIS services, I think you call them traditional GIS services. I guess that's making maps, uh, workflows, that kind of thing. And then you know, uh, developing uh, QGIS. Keeping in touch with what the users want and, and how the software works through these traditional GIS services, does, does that help you as a developer when you're creating new, new plugins for it? I, I definitely think so. So I would actually say that one of the reasons why QGIS is so popular today is because it has been driven, all the development has been driven by people who've been GIS users. So it's either in the early days, it was a GIS user who as a hobby was working on the software and making it better fit their needs as a GIS user, or today it might be more of a company that has a lot of GIS users using that software is funding a change to make it better for their GIS users. So there's a direct correlation there between the people who are using the software think up a change that will make their job easier or better or more, more enjoyable. And then that change goes into the software. It's directly end user driven, as opposed to looking at the kind of commercial world where the product development is subject to a separate roadmap that somebody else is deciding which features go in there, how those features look, and there's a disconnect there between the end user and the vision that that company has for their software. That, that makes a lot of sense. I'm pleased you took the time to sort of walk us through that. I think that's a really important piece of the conversation here. If we zoom out a little bit now and, and look at the future, where do you want to be? Where do you want North Road to be in, in five years' time, let's say? Do you want to hire more people? Are you, do you want to do bigger projects? Do you want to scaled down? Would you like to focus on just plugins? Where would you like to be in a perfect world? I mean, in a perfect world, there's, there's so many opportunities, again, for improving these open source software packages. And in a perfect world, I'd love to be able to address them all. So if there was enough end user organization funding available to 
pull on enough developers so that all of these bugs could get fixed, all of these missing functionalities could get addressed, you know, all these potential optimizations and improvements could get addressed. That would be that would be a fantastic place to be. I mean, another way to look at it is even if if QGIS was theoretically able to get to a state where it was perfect, it did every single thing that anybody could ever need in a desktop mapping application and it did it well and it did it really fast and there was zero bugs in that theoretically perfect state, that software would be so attractive that everybody would want to use it who is doing mapping. And at that stage, the I guess the nature of uh, an organization like North Road would change from working on that software itself the other services that kind of surround that would grow. So things like the training, the end user support, writing those kind of in-house plugins that do specific business logic for one organization, all that kind of ancillary work would grow accordingly. And there's a really a direct correlation there. Like the better QGIS becomes, the better open source geospatial becomes, the more attractive it is to these end user organizations. And then the more work there is available surrounding those software. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate your optimism. It's really great. You're you're the the glass is half full kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it sounds optimistic, but it's also something that I have seen in reality. Like over the last decade, is there's a, a snowball effect where the the more attractive that software gets, the more people want to use it, the more funding there is to make that software better. And it's like a it's an exponential curve. You know, it's not something that is petering out is kind of dying off it's growing and growing and growing as the software gets better and then that makes the software better and feeds off each other yeah no i i can completely see it, it wasn't meant as a critique in any way shape or form it's just a, just an observation yeah as a builder of things so you're, you're building these pieces of software you're, you're adding to it you're you're um, doing these gis services for people but you're doing it again and again and again and i realize you you like doing that if you've ever been tempted to like make one product and try and sell it again and again and again, like put one like effort into like a certain plugin or a service or I don't know, something else and try and sell that and then focus on selling that one thing and, and sort of have this, this scale that you couldn't otherwise reach just by trading time for, for money. There's a kind of two pronged answer to that. So one, one part is that we do actually have software that we sell as well. So there's a, there's a piece of software tool that we, um, that we sell called Slayer that lets people get Esri documents. So basically their, their ArcMap MXDs, their ArcGIS Pro APRXs and layer files and such and convert them into to QGIS equivalents and back again. So that that's something that we sell. We do it on a split level. So there's a community version available that anybody can get freely available and there's a licensed version. We've structured it that way because there was a massive R&D cost for it. So that just reverse engineering those formats in the first place took years. And so we, we have this uh, kind of structure where there's a licensed version. The licensed version has the full functionality for that the, the community version doesn't have. As soon as we hit certain funding milestones from selling that, then we'll push functionality back from the licensed into the community version. So kind of the long-term vision is that it'll all be in the community version, but we have to first recover our costs on, from working on that software. The other part of the answer is I actually... <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm really passionate about open source. I, I think open source is a, a really good model. It's something that I honestly enjoy being part of. So yes, you know, we could, I guess, do the same kind of thing, put all those effort of software development into writing our own thing that's behind closed doors, proprietary closed source software. I don't think I would get anywhere near the same kind of satisfaction out of what I do from that. I get a massive amount of satisfaction from working on it 
open source software that goes back out into the open that other people can get, other people can change, other people can improve, that can again get out there into the hands of people who couldn't otherwise afford the software. So kind of using that example again of somebody in a developing country who couldn't afford a piece of software, they can get QGIS, they can do all their spatial analysis, that can hopefully drive better decision-making and ultimately make the world a better place. There's a lot of satisfaction that comes from, from doing that as a living, working on that, that software. It sounds like you're, you're doing the work so you can make the software better so you get to do more work. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't phrase it that way, really. Like, uh, that, that sounds kind of like it's a, a change for change's sake. I would say it's more doing the work to make the software better and then that leads to more work, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is that the software is better. Yeah, and I, you have to forgive me. I probably <laughs> phrased that the wrong way, but it sounded like you're, you're driven by the work itself. You know, like, I like doing this thing, and it has all these sort of advantages out there in, in the wider community. But if I do this thing, if I make this thing better, then I'll get to do more of this thing, I guess is the way I should have phrased that. Yeah, and I feel incredibly fortunate that I can do this as a living. Like, again, I, I really enjoy software development. I enjoy working on open source. I enjoy the collaborative nature of working on it with people from everywhere, from other organizations and such, and, and that there, there is that cooperative feeling as opposed to a competitive uh, nature to that. And, yeah, it is. I, I feel blessed that I can do that as a day job, as a, as a full-time living. Well, as someone who's personally benefited from your work with, with QGIS, I just want to say thanks. I'm, I'm glad you do that work. I'm sure there's a lot of other people that are also benefiting from the work that you do. I'd like to wrap up the conversation here. And my hope is that people will listen to this and go, oh, here is maybe not a roadmap, but, but like a, a rough sort of recipe that, that I could follow. Or here's somebody else's story. Let's say it like that. Here's someone else's story. They started here and now they've reached this sort of end state, which Sounds like a great place to be. Would you have sort of any sort of overarching advice for, for these people that, that want to get to this end state that, that you're right now doing this work in the open source community, you're working on software that they love? If you had to give them one piece of advice, what, what would you say to them? Okay, so I would say be prepared to put in a lot of hours that you don't get paid for. That sounds negative upfront, um, but it's, it's really like it's a, it's a long game. So if you, if you look at my history, you know, I, I started off as a uh, volunteer contributor uh, for, for many years and that was kind of how I built my name, how I built the business name and that led to a stage where we, we can get paid work for that. Volunteer work is still a big part of what we do. So we still have quite a, a large amount of time where we're working on this software that isn't directly leading to income. So it work that we just see needs to be done that will make that software better, that will make things um, improved, keep the attractiveness of that software up so that it still is a viable alternative to the commercial software. That unpaid work is still a big part of what we need to do to keep North Road viable. If somebody is starting out from scratch, again, unfortunately, the, the reality is the, the way you'll get people's eye is through contributions. And you can't get the paid contributions if you don't have people's eye to start off with. So it's a bit of a cycle. You've got you to break that cycle by putting in the time, get a name for yourself by showing what you can do. And if that's unpaid contributions, then it's a, you know, it's a good way to 
to market yourself, to get your, your, your name out there. It's funny when you say it like this, unpaid contributions, I think people are like, oh, I'm not going to work for free kind of thing. But yet the vast majority of us are pretty happy to go to university for three, four, <laughs> five years. I don't know about you, but I didn't make a great deal of money during that time. And I did it in the hope that I would catch someone's eye at the end of it, that I would you know, make myself attractive enough that they would hire me to, to do something else. It, w- it was all like a, you know, a learning process, an unpaid learning process. But for some reason, we, we look at that quite differently. I think it's probably because that, that path is very well trodden. And the promise is, if you do this for five years, then you will get a well-paid job at the end of it. It's probably not so well-trodden in open source, but I, I think it's similar. Well, it is almost a, uh, a bit of a dirty word in, in open source or in, uh, you know, in those communities about asking people to, to do these volunteer contributions in order to get a job. It, it can be looked upon negatively in some spheres, but I, I would spin that and say, don't make those contributions just a contribution for our contribution's sake. Like, again, come back to that thing of scratch your own itch. Like, if you're a spatial person, if you're making maps, you're working on spatial data, you'll have a list that is pages long of things you want to see better in that software, of bugs you want fixed, of uh, workflows you want improved, of things you want made faster. That's the stuff to work on, like the, the things that directly lead to a better experience in your job even if it never goes anywhere and you never kind of get to that ultimate long-term vision of being able to work full-time on that software, there's still a reward there for you. You get to use software that's better. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I just want to be clear, I'm not sort of advocating for people working for nothing. I think they should, I think they should value their, their time and I think people should get paid, but I think you need to be worth paying. And sometimes, at least in my understanding or like my experience, my very personal experience, I can't just walk out the door and say, hey, pay me money for this thing that I'm passionate about. That they need proof. They need certainty around that, that you're going to be there tomorrow. They need to be able to look at a portfolio of work. They're looking for a history. And sometimes that history, it just takes a while to build. Yeah. And I can, again, I can definitively say that for QGIS, at least there is people watching contributions that go in there with an eye on employing these people. Niall, thank you very much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I hope that I can get you back on the podcast at some time, sometime soon. I'd love to. But before I let you go, where, where can people go? What, what's a good place to send them if, if they want to reach out to you, continue the conversation, ask questions about the work that you do and, and how you got there? I guess the, the usual social media channels, so Twitter slash X slash whatever you want to call it, Mastodon, if you want to go down that track, uh, you can find us on there. Check out our YouTube channel as well. We push out quite a lot on there and you can uh, get in contact with us via that. But I guess just to, to kind of spin the conversation back around again, feel free to reach out if you're looking at contributing to these projects and you're just looking for a little bit of guidance on how to get started. Again, I, I feel like the QGIS community is great with pulling people who are new on board, who are motivated and mentoring them through that. So I'm always happy to kind of get involved in that hands-on as well. So Again, th- thanks very much for your time now. Re- really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks once again to Planet for sponsoring this episode. Planet images the Earth every day to create a living dataset of global change, and you don't need to learn a bunch of new tools to take advantage of these insights. Use Planet satellite imagery to drive richer analysis with high spatial resolution, high frequency data, broad area coverage, and automated detection feeds integrated directly into your geospatial platform. You can learn more at planet.com/gis. 
I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Niall Dawson. Personally, I think his story is interesting and, and inspirational. And like I said, this could be your story too. It doesn't have to be exactly like Niall's, but I hope you can see a, a repeatable process here. In the past, I've published episodes about freelancing and people that are building businesses and careers around open source geospatial software, and I'll put links to those in the show notes of this episode. So that's it for this week's episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I hope that you'll take the time to join me again next week. I'll talk to you then. Bye.